0: Leading us in worship today. Well, good morning. We are glad you're here today, and I pray that you have uh, understood who Jesus Christ is more today, and even understanding the work of the Spirit and God, who is our Savior. Today, um, we are finishing a subject, which I'll mention in just a minute, just to let you know where we're heading. Uh, over the next two Sundays, we're going to finish a job we didn't finish earlier, and that is 1 John. We've been going for 1 John and we have chapter five to do, so if you haven't read it, I will be teaching next week and Francois will be helping me the following week and we're gonna finish 1 John so that we can uh, just close that book literally and such a great teaching that book is. And then for the summer, starting in three weeks or so, we're gonna do the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Here we are at the end of Christ's ministry today, actually at the very end of his ministry. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. I think it's one of the great sermons ever preached, and it's an incredible opportunity. And we're going to take the entire summer to work through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with the Beatitudes, the Blesseds blessed are the poor in spirit, et cetera, and we'll be doing that and working through that and then going through all the different teachings that Christ gave at what is now called the Sermon on the Mount early in his ministry. If you're not familiar with it, it's Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. We're only gonna take a couple of verses at a time and go through that thing verse by verse and little subject by subject and take it all the way through to Labor Day through the summer. So even when I'm away, God willing, the others who uh, help teach will be participating in that as well. Well, we've been a part of Easter over the last six weeks, seven services that we've been working through. We decided this year not to do Easter on a weekend, but really take some time in this. So we talked about the upper room. And then we talked about the city of Jerusalem. We talked about the Garden of Gethsemane. And then of course, the cross of Calvary where Jesus died. And then we talked on Easter morning of the empty tomb in the garden as well. And then last week we talked about the road to Emmaus and all the teachings that Jesus did with Cleopas and the other gentlemen and talked about how he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And now today we're gonna look at the world. This is the end of Jesus' life. After he rose from the dead, he was with us or with the world here, back with the disciples, for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. And we're going to look at two parts of those 40 days. We're actually going to end, we're going to start at the end and then work back a little. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. So it's not in the Gospels. It's the next book, Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, Acts, and we're going to read the first 11 verses and talk about them, and then I'm going to go into Matthew chapter 28, which also occurred during the 40 days, but previous, and I want to end on that. What does it really mean about the world? What did Jesus talk about involvement in the world, and what does that mean? And we're going to look at that today and how it applies to us, and hopefully end this whole series in understanding what God is teaching us. So the reading of his word, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'll make a couple of uh, statements on some things that are not a part of what we're talking about as we go, and then we'll get into it. In the first book, O Theophilus, I'll stop there. This is written by Luke. So the first book was the Gospel of Luke. The second book is this book, which is the history of the early church, what gets to after the passage that we're reading today. And he wrote it to a young man named Theophilus. Theophilus, the word in Greek means, uh, theo means God, philo means love, a lover of God. So this man or his family were definitely followers of God. And he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The commands we'll talk about in the previous or later on in Matthew 28. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed for his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is a beautiful sight and a beautiful commentary of the last moments of Jesus' earthly ministry in person with his disciples after the Easter uh, resurrection day that had occurred 40 days before that. And I'd like to share a couple of things. First of all, I want you to know what the disciples believed. So many times we talk about what others believed or even what Jesus taught, but what did the disciples believe at this point in time because we learn it here. Number one, the disciples believed in the risen Christ. Please understand that. The disciples believed in the risen Christ. It's really up here. It's kind of the the capstone of this whole conversation. If you hear anybody say, you know, the disciples really didn't believe this. It was all just a story fabricated by Peter and Paul and John, and the rest of them didn't believe it. Please understand that they did believe it. We'll talk about that in a few moments, but the risen Christ is up here. And then we look at verse three, that's kind of the overarching thing. In verse three, we realize that they believed in the reality of the resurrection. It's important to understand to go, well, what's the difference between he's risen and he has the resurrection? Well, it's the same thing except this. Um, I mentioned this to a few of you last week when Elizabeth and I were in Washington Two weeks ago, we went to the National Gallery of Art, which is one of the best places in America. I love art, and that building's unbelievable, and all the rest. But in it is a painting by Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali was a mid-20th century uh, postmodern and modern artist, and he did The Last Supper, a painting of The Last Supper. It's, It's the second most famous Painting of the Last Supper Leonardo da Vinci's is the most famous. And it's interesting, he has the 12 disciples at the table. No Jesus, no Jesus. Jesus is above them as a spirit. So he's above, he's got his arms out like a cross. So you think, wow, this is really biblical. And as you think it, and I studied it back in art class 100 years ago and realized that Salvador Dali only believed that God was up here and never came down to earth. That he was up here maybe orchestrating a few things, and you can call him Jesus, you can call him God, you can call him whatever you want, but he never came down. So if he never came down, he was really a spirit in the souls of the disciples. That's what Salvador Dali believed. And that's what a lot of people believe, that Jesus never came down. This is not what the disciples believed. The disciples believed that Jesus was a man who lived in and among them and taught them. He died on the cross. He was buried, and he was resurrected. He was a man who was once was dead and was alive. You see, they believed in the reality of the resurrection, and the reality of the resurrection is so key to our whole story. In fact, it is the key to the story. But they also believed, in the latter part of verse 3, in the coming of the kingdom of God appearing to them about in the second half of verse three during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now we're gonna talk a lot about the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, but please understand that the disciples understood that there were two kingdoms. There was a kingdom of this earth and there was a kingdom of God. They were a little confused for a while. They were thinking Christ came to change the kingdom of earth, remember that? And, you know, was he gonna take the Romans away? Was he gonna take all the bad people away and bring in his kingdom in Israel? But his kingdom was a different kingdom. And if you're not familiar with that, I preached on it several months ago on the two kingdoms, the fact that there are two kingdoms, and they believed that. So they believed in the risen Christ. They believed in the reality of the resurrection, meaning Jesus did live, and he did die, and he did rise again, and they believed in his kingdom. The next thing they believed was the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. We don't know a lot about the Holy Spirit if you start reading beforehand, except that Jesus said he was gonna send the Holy Spirit, but a lot is not spoken about in the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, and now all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit takes an enormous role in the life of the disciples and in the church, and can I say, in our own lives as well, and they believed in the power of the Spirit. Please understand, my friends, that spirit that was with those disciples is the same spirit that is with us today. This is what we believe. We do not believe that we are 2,000 or 2,100 years removed from the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit is here today. He is working in this very room, by the way, as well as everywhere else, because he is omnipresent, he can do whatever he wants, wherever he wants, whenever he wants, and he can work in your individual life, he can work in our corporate life, he can work wherever he wants, and can I say, he does work. It's not just that he can work, but that he does work. And they believe this, the power of the Spirit. But it doesn't end there. What is the power of the Spirit to help us to do? And it goes back to what I preached back uh, on the first sermon of this series, when Jesus said, I'm gonna send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not a comforter in the sense, that's a bad word because the word comforter means something different today than it meant back then. You remember when I talked about it? The comforter today means, I'm comforting you. I'm putting my arm around you and I'm patting you on the back and I'm helping you. You're not doing well. I get you're not doing well and I'm here to help you and pat you on the back. That is not what the Holy Spirit's job is. That might be what your friend's job is. That might be what you know your counselor's job is. That might be what your mother's job is. The Holy Spirit's job is, is to be there to help you in his power. He is not there just to pat you on the back and go, you can do it, you can do it. Now he does that of course, but it's far deeper than that. He has given us the power to do something. It's to do something. It's not just to have power in ourselves. What is it that he's given us, according to this, the power to do? To be my witnesses. To be my witnesses. My meaning Jesus, not mine meaning Bill. And so the importance of telling the world about Jesus. What does he say? He says, verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now this is important to understand because we think so many times, and I see in a lot of churches, the power of the Spirit is to help us worship better, to speak in tongues better, to do all these kind of cool things around other Christians. Can I tell you, the Holy Spirit has come so that we can go out into the world and tell them about Jesus. You got to understand that. You you know, I don't know. I'm not, I don't want to pounce on anybody. But so many times, we think the Spirit is about just being in this building and about when people get together. And so many times, we as believers, all we're trying to do is convince the already convinced. You know, I'm not trying to convince you today. I mean, you get it, you know who Jesus is. There's a few of you who don't. What I'm trying to say is that the power of the Spirit is to help us out there. It's to help us when we leave. The power is to be here as well, but the power is more than that, it's to help us. Where is it to help us? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the far ends of the earth. Now think about this. a lot of times we translate this or we interpolate it into meaning Boca is our Jerusalem, Palm Beach and Broward County is our Samaria, South Florida is our Judean and Samaria, and then the other parts, right? And I go, do you realize we live in the ends of the earth? We are the ends of the earth. God has told us to go to the ends of the earth. You are already at the ends of the earth, which means you are told to share Christ. It's not like you got to wait and share Christ when you go to Mozambique. Now, I'm all for going to Mozambique, and I've been to all these places and sharing Christ, but we've got to share Christ across the street. God has called us to share Christ, and he's given us the power, and if we don't do it, then what we're not doing what God has called us to do. See, he's called us to go in the world in the power of the Spirit and share him and be his witnesses, In other words, all of us are to be his witnesses. Now, here's the problem, though. Huge problem with this whole witness thing is that you have hired me to be your witness. Have you? No. That is a lie that came about 400 years after Christ, It was a man named Eusebius who came up with the idea that there were people who worked in the sacred world, and there were people who paid for the people who worked in the sacred world. So there were priests, monastics, nuns, bishops, pastors, deacons. They get paid to do the work of the ministry, and everybody else had a job, and they would pay into the church to have these people do the work of the ministry. In other words, you paid me to be good. You paid me to be the witness. You paid us to do that. And I can tell you that that is not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is that you are paying me to help you be the witnesses. The Bible says we are to the pastors and the teachers and all those. Our job is to help you be the witnesses around the world. Now, I'm to be a witness too. Elizabeth's to be a witness, Cameron, Clay, et cetera. We're all to be witnesses, but we're not witnesses because you pay us to be a witness. You pay us to help you be witnesses. So please understand that at the end of the day, 800 or 1,000 people are gonna walk out of here, and if they do what God wants them to do, are gonna be witnesses to the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit of what Jesus has done, and that is that he's rose from the dead. That's what our job is. Now, let me give you an example of this, and I've shared this many times. What just happened up here a few minutes ago? We had 14 or 15 people up here. What were they doing? What were they doing? They were worshiping. So, okay, was that all they were doing? They were worshiping. Yes, they were worshiping. They are worshipers. They were worshiping either with their instruments or with their voices or through leading as Clay was leading us. They were worshiping. But can I tell you, that's not what they were doing. They were doing that individually. But if you walked in here, and I remember at Easter, uh, one of our guests who was not a believer at all came and said, boy, that was a great performance. And can I tell you what? At Easter, it was a great performance. They did incredible. Today was too. But that's not the point. The point is, we think that they are the actors, and I sit down here so I consider me a part of you, that we are the audience. God prompts them to do what they do, and then they act their worship, and we are the audience to listen to their worship. Isn't that what we think? Can I tell you that's totally wrong? What they are are the prompters for us to be the worshipers, we are not the audience out here. We are the actors. Who's the audience? Who? God. There is only an audience of one. It's God. God is our audience in our worship. So these people who are up here worshiping, they are worshiping to God, not to us, and they're helping us as actors I use that in the positive word, not a negative word, to act out our faith to worship the Almighty God. All of us were only worshiping to one person. If we were worshiping to anyone else, we were just singing. And there's nothing wrong with singing, but don't get singing confused with worship. You can sing without worship. You can worship without singing. But please understand, if you're worshiping, you're worshiping to God. And these people are prompting us to do good things, which is to worship. Pastors and Christian workers are the prompters to have all of us acting out our faith. And what is acting out our faith in this example? To be witnesses basically wherever we go. Now, our society says you cannot be a witness wherever you go. So the question is, are you going to go with what society tells you? Are you going to go with what the government tells you? Are you going to go with what your job description tells you? Or are you going to go with what the Bible tells you? And ultimately, it's your decision. You've got to make a decision. You can be silent, but the Bible says be a witness. Do you see the difference? You've got to make the choice. Are you going to follow the Bible or are we going to follow the mores of our society, because God has given us the spirit to give us the power to do that, didn't he? That's the beautiful thing. And then finally, at the end, what did the uh, two guys, the angels, sorry, they might've been women, I don't know. It says two men, sorry, they were men, stood by them in white robes, angels, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven This Jesus who, last verse, verse 11, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go. This is what we call the blessed hope or our hope in the reality that Jesus is coming again. All said and done, please understand, Jesus is coming back. He is not done with this world. The chaos of this world is not complete Jesus is coming again, and our job before Jesus comes again or before we die, whichever comes first, is that we are to share the gospel with people. We are to be witnesses. That word is the word martyr, by the way. Martyr has taken a negative connotation of of speaking till you die, the death. Well, we are to speak. We are martyrs for Christ. Doesn't mean we have to die to speak it, but we are to speak it. Now let's turn to Matthew and learn what this all means. He gives some more context here. It's at the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, verse 16, till the end of the book. This is really cool. Now the 11 disciples, verse 16, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We don't know if this is week one, two, three, or four. We don't know, but obviously it's before Acts 1 sometime after the resurrection, before the ascension, it's in there at some point in time. It's obviously a little towards the end because Matthew puts it at the end of his gospel here. And he directed them to go to a certain mountain. What mountain did he direct them? We don't know, but it's somewhere in, in Galilee. It's all mountains, not mountains like the Rocky Mountains, not even mountains like the Smoky Mountains. They're more like the Blue Ridge Mountains. which are just kind of small and there, and you could walk up, you can walk down them. I and there was a certain place that they would assemble. And remember, there's only 11 of them because what happened to the one? Judas, he defected. He defected. Just think about it. He was gone, okay? And we can talk about him another day. There's only 11 disciples. A 12th one is added uh, a little later after the ascension, but there's 11 now. To the mountain. And when they saw him, what did they do? They did two things. They worshiped him and some doubted how do you like that? That's a kind of a downer. I thought we're supposed to be all, at the end of the day, be all positive and all. They worshiped Christ and some doubted. What does this mean, some doubted? Who are the some? Well, the some are part of the 11. These are, you know, Matthew and John, Peter, James, the other James, the other Judas, Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, Simon Peter. These are the good people. These are the people that are the beginning of the church, and they are beginning to doubt. So what does that mean, doubting? Has anybody ever doubted? Raise your hand if you've doubted. Now, let me ask you this question. Did you doubt before faith, or did you doubt after faith? Both. Both. That's an interesting thing. Let me share a story. Um, Last Sunday while we were here, um, well, let me step back. Back in January, I had the privilege of marrying one of the ladies in our church to a gentleman who lived in upstate New York, had a large family. They all came down here. She had no family in the United States. All her family is in her home country. So a bunch of us, I obviously officiated, but a bunch of you were there. We had a whole group there and we acted as her family. We sat on the side of the bride. It was a wonderful time. Got married, she moved to Buffalo, New York, just as winter started, didn't quite get that, but she's visited a few times and they're doing great. A brother of the gentleman lives in West Palm and he committed suicide during church last Sunday. 50, 48, seven years old, 48 years old, two boys, So Elizabeth and I are at the funeral on Friday up in Jupiter. We weren't officiating it because he went to another church, and you go, why is this happening? Can I just tell you, the, the family were believers, he was a believer, everybody's a believer, and I tell you what, there was some doubting going on. There's some doubting, why did this happen? Why is life unfair? How do these two boys live knowing their father jumped out of a umpteen-story-high condominium on Singer Island? just an amazing thing, but we felt the Spirit of God working in that room. It was an unbelievable experience to to feel and understand the Spirit of God working during the most crushing of pain in someone's life, in a family's life. What am I saying here? The Spirit works, but we doubt from time to time. Now... Some of you doubt all the time. Does anybody do that? You don't have to raise your hand. Can I tell you, you can't doubt all the time because if you doubt all the time, you're really disbelieving. Please take it what it is. If you are doubting 100% of the time, then you are in disbelief. I'd rather you just say, I don't believe, than say, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Being not sure is disbelief after a while. Occasionally in belief you have, why did this happen? And you live in that doubt for a few days, a few weeks during your grief, and then you come back out of it. But if you stay on the bridge of doubt, you're really in disbelief. What is a bridge? A bridge, is, a bridge takes you somewhere. You can't live on a bridge. The ice forms. The wind is bad. It's a terrible place to be. A bridge is to get you from A to B, from this Side of the river to that side of the river, from this valley or this mountain to that mountain, or across the valley, you don't live on the bridge. And so many people are living on the bridge of doubt. And can I just say, we never see the disciples doubting after the words that Jesus says following that they doubted. Let's read those words. All authority, and Jesus said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth, I've got it all, people. I've got it all, disciples. And can I tell you, these guys didn't, de- didn't defect. You see, if they were doubters, they would have just kind of gone back into the lifestyle of Israel or gone somewhere else. But we I talked about this months ago, so I won't repeat it today. But all 11, including Mattathias, who was added so the 12, all of them went places and all of them were killed for their faith. They were martyred by death except for the apostle John. Every one of them went to some heinous death because of their belief. Now, if I was doubting, I wouldn't go to death for something I doubted. I would just go, you know, I really believe it, but you know what? I don't believe it that much. I recant. Let me tell you, none of these disciples recanted after this moment in time. They were confused. They were wondering what's going on. Jesus clarified and said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. They loved him. They worshiped him. They just didn't understand that he had all the authority. And as soon as he said it, they understood it. And they got their marching orders a week later in Acts chapter 1. And they went off and did the things that we are all recipients of 2000 years later it's an amazing thing so what did he say it's interesting before we change the slides he said all authority is given to me make disciples and i'll be with you till the end of the age that's what this verse says i have all the authority you are to make disciples i will be with you till the end of the age That's what it is. Now, let's walk through this. So, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples. So, what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. How do you make a disciple? It takes a disciple to make a disciple. Now, occasionally, the Bible can make a disciple A um, someone who speaks the truth but doesn't believe it. I've had people say, I came to Jesus from a guy who didn't even believe what he told me. And occasionally that happens. But making disciples, he's specifically talking to believers, go and make disciples. And then he says, how do we do it? By three ways. Number one, by going. Going. Remember how I always say that when we come to church here, we're the come church. And when you leave in a few minutes, you're the go church. We can count the come church. We know exactly how many people are in this room, how many people are on the live stream, how many children are downstairs in the children's ministry, how many people are in our Spanish church, how many people are in the Slavic church. I can count the come church today, and I can tell you tomorrow how many people were in the come church at Boca Raton Community Church, but I cannot tell you how many are in the go church because that's you. Some of you are going to go and be silent until you come again next week, but others of you are going to go and be witnesses, and you are part of the Go Church. And God has called us to go and be disciples and make disciples, to go out there and make disciples. Everyone should be, who's a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple maker. That's what we are, we're disciple makers. Our job as leaders of this church is to help you make disciples. We help make disciples, you help make disciples. It's something we all do. Every person in here is to go. And you go, I don't have the theological understanding you have. I don't have the understanding. We'll get to that in a minute. You don't have to have all that. All you got to know is about Jesus and share Jesus and share what Jesus has done in your life and share what Jesus did back 2,000 years ago and let people respond and let the Holy Spirit do the work. And if people are ignoring you, pray and just say, Holy Spirit, you do the work and pray for people. Have a ministry of prayer. If you can't, if nobody will listen to you, have the ministry of prayer. It works, let me tell you. The second is by baptizing. Now, we need to understand this. Baptizing is not salvation. You know that, don't you? When you get baptized... It is a representation. Now, here's what's important back then, which we don't get in this country. In this country, I'll use myself as an example. My grandparents were believers. Two of them became believers as adults. The other two became believers as children, but all four of them, by the time I came around, were believers. My mom and dad were believers. My sister became a believer, I became a believer. I've got five children, they became believers. I got four grandchildren, two of them are believers, the other two are too young to understand it. You see all this believing stuff coming from person to person to person to person. It doesn't sound like it, it just sounds like they're continuing. I continued in my parents who continued in their parents and my grandkids are continuing in their parents who continued in, you know, just kind of all this continuing. That's not the faith. The faith is not a continuance faith is a conversion. You must understand it. It's a conversion. Though my parents were believers, that did not make me a believer. What that made me is a son of believers. And you sometimes can't tell the difference between a son of a believer and a believer. Because if I choose to follow in the ways that they are, you can't tell the difference. You might think I'm a believer. Oh, his mom and dad are great believers. He must be a believer. Not necessarily. I have to have faith in Jesus Christ. And on October 4, 1972, I came to faith in Jesus Christ. And you go, what took you so long? You are 14 years old. Why didn't you do it when you were eight? I don't know. I think I lived on my parents' faith for those first years. And then I finally realized when I was 14, I can't live on my parents' faith. You can't live on your friend's faith, your wife's faith, your husband's faith, your kid's faith, whatever. This church's faith, it's all good but you can't live on it. You have to convert. And when you convert, you get baptized. So back then, baptism was huge because they were converting from a non-follower of Christ or Christian point of view to a Christian point of view, right? They were really converting. So this is like converting from Judaism to Christianity, converting from Islam or Buddhism or Hindu or some... Shintoism or Confucianism to Christianity, you don't convert to Christianity, you convert to Christ, excuse me, but you convert to Christ. And so the baptizing was an outward expression of what you had done inwardly. And so even when I was baptized, people said, your parents are Christians, what are you getting baptized for? Well, because I needed to let the world know that I had converted as well. And you need to let the world know. So baptism is not the answer. Baptism shows that the answer has happened. Do you see that? And then the last one is, so we go, be the go church. And you don't have to baptize people. You don't have to immerse. You you don't have to dunk people or pour water on them. We can do all that. But what you're doing is you're sharing Christ with them so that they convert, Please understand, you are not a believer because you're in this room or with anybody else. And the third thing is teaching what Christ commanded. Now, this is interesting. Jesus didn't say, teach them what I taught you. Now, that's what I would have thought he would have said. I taught you some great things. You teach them those great things. No, because you know why? The teaching is good, but the teaching doesn't save you. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, If you believe that, that saves you. If you're good to your neighbor, you turn the other cheek. That's not going to save you. That's good living, but that is not going to save you. We need to understand because that's how we should act as a believer. It doesn't make you a believer. And so he's saying, teach them what I have commanded you. And when you do that, and behold, I will be with you till the end of the age both passages let us know that Jesus is with us the whole time. Please understand that God is with us and the importance of that. Now, let's come to conclusion in this because it's something that's very important. Our time is almost up. I want to look at inward, upward, and outward. First of all, let's look inward for a moment. We're not, usually, I end a sermon with looking inward. I'm going to not end with inward. But inward, do you really follow Jesus Christ? Ultimately, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't be his witness. I mean, you can be in church and do great things, but all of it's worthless if you don't follow Christ yourself. So do you follow Jesus Christ? An inward understanding of what Jesus Christ did because it gives us relationship with God, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the distance of Christ, of God. It's very important. Second one is upward. Now, this is really important. When we look at the Bible in the New Testament, in the Gospels, you see a lot of groups of people. Let's look at the Sadducees and the the scribes. They wanted to follow teaching. They were academics. The scribes, they were lawyers, not lawyers as we think of lawyers court of law, but they were lawyers as in the court of um, the temple. They wanted to know the scriptures. They felt if I know the scriptures better, I will know God. Please understand there's an importance of knowing the scriptures, but knowing the scriptures is not the same as knowing God. There is a difference, it's important. Then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that brought religion to all of this. They said, if you do certain things and you don't do other things, you will be accepted by God. Pharisees, they did some very good things and they stopped you from doing some very bad things. They weren't all bad. There were some good things they were doing, but they were saying, if I do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing, I will have a relationship to God. So there were these Sadducees and scribes that said, it's all about academics. There was this, uh, the Pharisees say, it's all about doing good and being good, and not doing evil, and all these things, even down how do you pray, and pray good, and all these things. And then there was a whole nother group of people that were following the prophet. First of all, there was a prophet, John the Baptist, and then they kind of started following Jesus. And you remember all those thousands of people at times, what were they following? Were they following Jesus Christ, the son of God, or were they following a prophet who could do things for them and things like that? And so there are people that follow prophets. So even today, even in our society today, there's these three kinds of people. There's the people that think the academic side, and just kind of the knowing side. If I know more, I'll do more and be better. And then there's the doers that say, I got to do good and be good. And why would God be mad at me if I do good? And he was such a good person, and she did such good things. And goodness of activity helps you. And then there's others that follow Jesus as a prophet. Yeah, well, I love his teaching. Remember, what he said, Teach them my commandments, don't teach them my teachings. Now we teach these teachings because they're good, but it's the commandments that love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. These are the commandments. I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are the commandments. So what is the answer? The answer is that we are to be a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ, yes, who has knowledge, yes, who acts good, yes, who is following Jesus, all those things are important, but we are disciples. And if we are a disciple, then we are to make disciples. We are to reproduce. All plants, animals are reproductive, and we are to reproduce as followers of Jesus Christ. So there's this inward, there's this upward. Now let's look at outward, and this is where I wanna spend a moment outward. What are we going to be a witness for? What are we going to do? And I want to give three things that our culture, our society, and I don't mean American culture, but the world culture for thousands of years is number one, people are lost. People are lost. There is a lostness in people. And what are they lost? Remember Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save those who were lost in Mark, the gospel of Mark, he came to save the lost. What were they lost? They were lost in their relationship to God. The relationship to God is gone, they are lost. And our job, God has given us the responsibility and actually the privilege to share the gospel, to let people know that they can have a relationship with the almighty God. And that's the beautiful thing. There's a lostness in people. Were you lost before you found Jesus, before you came to Christ? Yes or no? Yes, you were lost. But there's also this other part, and friends of mine who I've talked a lot about this use the word brokenness. There is a brokenness in our culture, in the systems of our culture. Why do we help foster care? Because the system is broken. Why do we have city house On our property, where we help uh, mothers who have, uh, you know, are homeless with their children because the system is broken. I can't tell you, this is something down the road when I get to heaven, if I get my five minutes in front of God to ask any question, one of the questions is gonna be this Why did I have two loving parents? Why did I grow up where I never missed a meal? Why did I have a house that had air conditioning and an ice maker in it? Why did I go to the college of my choice, marry the woman of my dreams? And I can tell you hundreds of people who didn't and couldn't and didn't have that opportunity. The system is broken, even if it's not totally broken for you. And we need to help people who are broken in that system. That is something we as believers have to do. I believe we don't just do that alone because if we do that alone, we're the United Way and that's not what we are. We've got to talk about Christ and help those who are in a broken system. And then the third is this, pain. Everyone has pain. The Bible tells us we will all have pain and every person in this room, unless you're four years old, has experienced true pain, have you not? It's pain, sorrow, tears, and death, that's the curse. We haven't experienced death yet, but pain, sorrow, and tears. There's pain in this world, and you and I have an opportunity to help people who are in pain. Elizabeth and I didn't go to that funeral last Friday because I'm the pastor of this church, or she's a part of the, mem- you know, the, the team of this church. We went because we have friends who are in pain. And we went to stand with friends who had pain. Not because I'm the pastor, I wasn't running the funeral. I was there as a layperson, just like you, to help somebody put our arms around people and say, we love you and we're praying for you. And God bless you during this very difficult time and we're helping them. Why? Because you and I have been called to reach out in the lostness and the brokenness and the pain of this world. That is what we are to be witnesses for. And you and I have a grand opportunity to do this. And I don't wanna leave this Easter season without bringing a close to this. It's great that we know the sermons of the upper room and that Jesus wept over the city and we know what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and we know the cross and we know the resurrection and we know the Old Testament prophecies that we learned last week. But what are we gonna do with all this? You and I have a choice.